Welcome to The Nine Line, your news and information source for healthcare-related issues impacting Southern Nevada veterans, and a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. And now, here's your hosts, John Archiquette and Joshua Gray. Hi, and welcome to the Nine Line Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Gray, flying solo this week. John is uh, out of the office. He's out on assignments, so it's just me here this week. But uh, we got a uh, pretty important topic to talk about here this week. It's something that we, uh, we talk about quite a bit here uh, over the 80-some-odd the shows that we've had here on the Nine Line. Um, September, if you don't know, the month of September is National Suicide Prevention Month. Um, and next week is also National Suicide Prevention Week. It's uh, such an important topic uh, to the nation and society at large that it gets a, a month and a week all contained up into one. So to talk about that and, and veteran suicide and, and some of the things that we here at the VA are doing to uh, to help combat that, we've got uh, Joe Lasky joining us here. He's uh, been on the show before, but before you were with the Vet Center. And now, uh, Mr. Lasky, he is the Suicide Prevention Program Manager here at the VA. So Joe, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me back. Sure. So um, tell us a little bit about your role here as the Suicide Prevention Program Manager. Um, what exactly that entails? Because there's really no one person that is in charge, right? It, it's a team effort when it comes to combating suicide. So tell us a little bit about, about what you do as, as the program manager. Absolutely. And you know, I couldn't have said it better myself in that we don't ever want one person to feel responsible for preventing suicide in any anybody's life. And one of the things the VA has done really well over the last few years is develop that model of, you know, every person has a role to play within suicide prevention. And the suicide prevention team itself is the ones who can add that extra layer of support to a veteran who has been identified for high risk of suicide through our high risk flag identification program. So we manage all those cases. Uh, The team also responds to every VCL call um, here in the Southern Nevada area. So if somebody does call 988 and um, requests a follow-up through the VA because maybe the issue that they're dealing with at that time is regarding their health care, um, you know, or maybe it's a socioeconomic issue and they don't know where to turn because, you know, they need to find a new place to live. They're looking for a new job. Um, my team will actually follow up with them um, and help try to resolve that issue for them. And then lastly, a lot of what we do is just, uh, you know, opportunities to educate the public along with our staff on the latest suicide prevention policies that the VA has to offer um, and really help empower everybody and understand exactly what their role is. Because it's one thing for us to ask and say, hey, you know, everybody has a role to play. Um, But it's another thing to um, actually educate and have that person feel empowered to go out and do it. And that's a big part of what we want to do, not just to all of our staff, but to all of our veterans and their family and loved ones who may be an advocate in that person's life. So when it comes to to veteran suicide, we, we commonly hear the the term it's almost become a catchphrase mm-hmm. of uh, 22 veterans a day commit suicide and, mm-hmm. and that's something that's kind of lodged itself in the public consciousness I, I see it on friends Facebook pages even people who aren't veterans or mm-hmm. don't have any veteran connection um, but that's that's the stat that's been out there for a long time and I know we've done a lot both in the VA and other other agencies to, to, to bring veteran suicide down so is that number still accurate and, and if not where where, where does it sit today? Um, it, it is not accurate, but it's still useful. Um, you know, it was a little over 10 years ago in which 22 a day became kind of a rally cry for the veterans community. And, and it really did just serve a great purpose in that it helped identify the issue and give somebody 
everybody a number they can rally around and say, this has to stop and we have to do more. And that's why you see things on social media. That's why you see, you know, walks, hikes, bikes across America to raise awareness. You see all these great different campaigns around the number 22. Um, And it really has done um, just just a wonderful job in uniting the community and trying to help us resolve um, the issue of veteran suicide and get us down to the number of zero, uh, which is really our overall goal. Um, the good news is we are trending in the right direction. Um, the latest figures have us down to about 17 veterans a day. Obviously not where we want to be, but we are moving in the right direction. Um, because of 22 and the research um, it's you know helped fund uh, the best practices we've developed through it. Um, I think we now have the tools in place to continue moving closer and closer to zero and eventually get there. Um, but for me, the more important number within the veterans community and really just within the suicide prevention community as a whole is the number 135. And what that relates to is a 2018 University of Kentucky School Social Work um, research uh, program grant that they did in which they looked into um, completed suicides and the effect it has on a community. And what they realized is that for every completed suicide on average, you're looking at 135 people that are negatively affected by that action. So that's friends, families, coworkers, casual acquaintances. Um, you know, anybody member here who may be part of a veterans treatment team who is going to look back and go, what could have I done differently? How could I have played a role in preventing this, you know, tragic, um, event from happening. And so now we want to look to that 135 and we want to say, how do we educate and empower these people? How do we get out there as a suicide prevention team, as a VA and into the communities and say, Hey, you know what? You don't have to be a victim. You don't have to, you know, live with a completed suicide through programs like safe training and other gatekeeper training. We can help provide you the tools to help these people in your life, to have these potentially difficult conversations and also be aware of the resources out there to help them. One of the great greatest tools out there right now is the new VA reach site in which va.gov forward slash reach R E A C H. Um, I highly encourage everybody listening to go to that website and get familiar with it. It is a wonderful tool tool in which if you have a veteran in your life and they're experiencing any sort of hardship, be it financial employment, housing, personal relationship, mental health, physical health, they can go to this website and learn how the VA can actually help them resolve those issues um, that they're dealing with. And you can help be that advocate for them. Um, And that's really what we're looking for. And we're talking about empowering 135 people. So I feel like 22 has done its job. It's a great number and it's still useful in some capacity. It does not accurately reflect where we are with suicide prevention within the veterans community. But for me, I want to find that 135 and empower every one of those people to be a champion in the fight against veteran suicide. When it, when it comes to people who are ideating, considering mm-hmm. you know, taking their own life, I, I know a lot of times those people feel alone, mm-hmm. right? Like there's no other, no other option. Nobody's going to care if I do it anyways. Is there... I guess, is there benefit in trying to educate people who may be going down that path that, hey, this is going to impact 135 other people as a as a deterrent? Is there is there some value there to educating others outside of those people, those 135 people that may be touched by it? Um, I, you know, I, I like to look at it as not as like more of a guilt driven thing of like, well, if you do this, it's going to make 135 people sad. And that's not but what I, I was trying to ask. But, yeah. I, but what I like to look at it is go, you know, if, if we average, if it's average is 135 people. Chances are there's two to three people in your life who care about you, who are willing to help, but we've just never had those conversations with them. 
it's hard to talk about a 50 pound problem if I've never discussed a five pound problem. Um, and when we're at that 50 pound stage, that's where suicide is looking like an option towards those people. So we'll really want to look at is saying, Hey, how do you find those people? One of the things I always like to say is like, you know, when you're above the age of 18, nobody legally has to look after you anymore. Nobody has to be a part of your life. So if you have friends on Facebook and social media, if you have contacts in your phone, if you have people who just randomly text and call you just to see how you're doing it, they're doing it because they care. They're doing it because they like you. They do it because you've made a positive impact on their life. So why not take advantage of that relationship and not just talk about the sports and the weather um, and the casual things that we all do when we're in social situations, but find those two, three, five people in your life that you can readily talk to and discuss and start building those relationships with them. So that way, when that 50 pound problem develops, or if it just comes out of the blue, you have somebody in your corner you can talk to. But really what we want is for everybody to talk about it when it's at that five or 10 pound stage, um, and just kind of resolve it then, because then hopefully we're never even getting to the point of suicidal ideation. You know, and you mentioned, you mentioned, you know, talking about it while it's at, mm -hmm. at a low level. Uh, I've noticed over the last five, 10 years that talking about suicide and talking about those kinds of thoughts have become a lot less taboo. Right. Um, it, it's been and we've mentioned it on the show before that that people are, are willing to talk about that. It's OK to not be OK. Right. Um, how big of, a, of an impact have you seen that kind of that shift over the last five or 10 years uh, have on suicide awareness and, and prevention? Oh, it's been huge. And, you know, within the veterans community, um, one of the things we have working against us is just our experiences in the military. Um, you know, I joined the Army in 2001. And to talk about any level of suicidal ideation in 2001 meant you were getting your bootlaces taken away. They were probably going to dress you in a road guard vest. And they were going to make you either assign a battle buddy to watch you or you're going to sit at the CQ desk until they could get somebody to come ha have a deeper conversation with you, which probably wasn't going to go well mm -hmm. in regards to your career. Um, and we've changed and we've grown and we've shown that like exactly it's it's okay to not be okay it's okay to talk about these things it's okay to get help um, but we're still working against that stigma um, and this is why I think it's so important to have those conversations at the five or ten pound level early and often so that we can build that positive reinforcement within our veterans community and get people to actually experience the fact that it's okay to talk about these things you know we're not here to take away your guns we're not here to put you on a 72-hour hold we're not here to compromise your secret clearance or any of these, um, you know, the things you have going on in your life. We're here to keep you safe. We understand that as a veteran, you've gone out and done something that 94% of the country's never experienced. And through it, you've earned the ability to go out and build a wonderful, great chapter of your life. And all we want you to do is take advantage of every single resource out there in order to go out there and achieve whatever it is you want. And for me, that's what suicide prevention is, helping people achieve their goals and get out there by taking advantage of every benefit, entitlement, government program, and non-for-profit out there and educating them on that they don't have to go through this alone. So if, if I have somebody who's a friend and I'm worried about them, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of hesitation for people. One, I don't want to get in their business. Oh, I don't want to make it worse. I don't want to push them into it. How would you recommend somebody that sees a friend who may be in crisis or who may just be struggling, how do you recommend for, for that individual to kind of broach that subject? Because it's a very difficult thing to, 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 to just kind of jump into, right? Absolutely. No, you're right. And, and it's one of those things, like I said, we all get really good at sports and weather talk, right? You know, we can go to the Buffalo Wild Wings, we can eat a plate of chicken wings and talk about the game and talk about life in just kind of that, you know, superficial way. And that's great and it's fun and it's an important part of what we do. Um, and 
this isn't a conversation you're trying to have with everybody in your life. I, it's not our job to go, okay, well, I've got 200 friends on social media, so therefore I'm going to connect with all 200 of those people at a deeper level. Um, but there's probably five, two, three that actually are people in your life that you want to be able to help and you want to be able to. So for me, one of the things I say is role, uh, role model that behavior. You know, if you're unsure how to ask somebody for help, go ahead and talk about your problems. Let them be comfortable helping you. We all like to be the strong one. We all like to be the one who can come in and help our friends and family. So why not give them that ability to be the strong one for you at that moment and disclose that stuff and really set that groundwork to get them to understand like, oh, yeah, you know what? We don't have to just talk about the game. We don't just have to talk about the monsoons that happened last week. You know, we can actually talk about real life. And this is somebody who's going to listen to me. Um, but really, the easiest and best way to do it is by doing it by yourself. And once again, we don't have to disclose the worst day of our life, right? We're, you know, we're all veterans. We understand, you know, no, no, it's never fun when somebody comes up to you and being like, so tell me about the worst experience you ever happened in the military. And you're like, well, I don't want to talk about that with you. Like right. it's the worst experience of my yeah. life. I, would, you know, I barely want to talk about that with anybody. Right. But once again, I can talk about a bad day. I can talk about a disagreement with my significant other. I can talk about stress at work. Um, not that I'm potentially going to lose my job, but just that, hey, sometimes we have bad days. And when you start to do that with people, they're, hopefully they're going to open up back to you. And you're creating that relationship in which you, you're going to that deeper level. And now you're having that trust with that person that when crisis happens, they know they have somebody they can turn to. And, you know, this is something we've talked about on the show before with some of our um, behavioral health providers and things like that is, you know, military members don't exactly do vulnerability very well, right? That's that's kind of a difficult thing for people to, to go, get into, right? Yep. Yeah. And, you know, there's, it's, it's interesting you say that there's a, there's a uh, retired uh, ranger out there named Yuma Barrett. He has a podcast called Leading with Vulnerability in which people talk about their transition issues from coming to the military to the civilian world and how they've had to go through there. And it's one of those things that's really great where somebody who's had a very, very successful career, 20-plus strong in a special operations unit, is willing to talk about this and bring in others who are going through this. So once again, the culture is starting to change, um, but it's not always going to take the big swings like that. It's not, you know, we don't, we don't need to hit grand slams and home runs every time we're at base. We just want to get people to first. And whatever that looks like in you and your personal life, um, whatever that, you know, whoever those people are and whatever those stories you're talking about, that's where we want. Like, you know, if you don't know how to swim, you don't have to jump into the deep end of the pool. Mm -hmm. There's a shallow end. There's water wings. There's lessons to do. So we want to get you to the deep end, but we want to get you to the deep end at a pace you're comfortable with. So uh, talking about modeling behavior, mm -hmm. you know, you say it's different for everybody, but what does hitting a single look like for Joe Lasky? You know, for me, uh, it, it's really just about when people ask you how your day is going, actually giving an honest response. You know, uh, especially like with my wife. And if she's listening to this, she's going to be like, well, he never does that. Um, so uh, but it, it, is, it is true in that sense. You know, uh, we want to be clear and say like, hey, you know what? You know, it's easy to say everything's OK. Oh, I don't want to burden you. I don't want you know, I don't want I don't want to put that. I don't want to put my bad day on you. But at the same time, I would never want her to not put her bad day on me. So that's an unfair thing for me to do. So I'm teaching myself and I'm being better at communicating with her and when yeah things are bad at work you know she's not going to understand what's going on and what i do um you know or you know in personal life she can still be there she can still listen she can still empathize she can still understand that i'm stressed out and be there and be a supportive person for me in that role and people commonly in that kind of a scenario will say well i don't want to bother them with my troubles it's mm -hmm. like well they asked yeah. right you it, it, I'm, I'm assuming if you asked it's because you you actually want to know the answer and so if it's not you know if i'm struggling or not in a great place that seems like the right time to tell them right absolutely yeah. 
So um, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. This has been a great discussion so far, um, but, you know, we got to got to take a break um, and we'll uh, we'll be right back on the other side of that break with Joe Lasky and, and talking a little bit more about uh, suicide prevention, and a little bit about what the VA does to uh, combat veteran suicide. Stay with us. You're listening to The Nine Line, a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. We'll be back with more right after this. Victor deployed for the first time to Afghanistan in 2003. At four in the morning, my phone rang. They said, I regret to inform you that your husband was wounded in action. Victor sustained a moderate traumatic brain injury. I was doing school full-time, and I was also then caring for Victor. One of the most important elements of caregiving is taking care of yourself. I just didn't want to forget that I also had goals and that I also had a life. What I did is I challenged Victor to meet me halfway. There are almost six million military and veteran caregivers across the nation. We have our own journey, and we can fulfill that journey at the same time that we are helping our loved one. Visit aarp.org caregiving for a free military veteran's guide to navigate your caregiving journey and better care for your loved one and yourself. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Mike Richmond of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs with this message for veterans. If you're a veteran having thoughts of suicide or know of a veteran at risk for taking their own life, Call the new Veterans Crisis Line number, 988, then press 1. It's available 24-7. This shorter, three-digit number provides an easier-to-remember way to access the Veterans Crisis Line, which links to over 500 VA suicide prevention coordinators. Suicide prevention is VA's top clinical priority, and in the words of VA Secretary Dennis McDonough, during a crisis, every second counts. This new number, he says, makes it easier for veterans and those who care about them to reach life-saving support without having to be enrolled in VA benefits or health care. For more information, go to VeteransCrisisLine.net. That's VeteransCrisisLine.net. I'm Mike Richmond. Welcome back to The Nine Line, Southern Nevada's source for veteran-related health care news and information. Here's your hosts, John Archiquette and Joshua Gray. Welcome back to the Nine Line. Josh Gray, your host here, talking with Joe Lasky. He's our Suicide Prevention Program Manager here at the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. Joe, thanks again for joining us. Um, so uh, as, as an American culture, you know, not just within the VA, uh, we talk about veteran suicide almost as it's a, if it's a completely different subset of, of suicide altogether. And, and anecdotally, it, it's really the only subset of... Uh, people who end up taking their own lives that people talk about, right? Mm-hmm. You, you don't hear a whole lot about people in the service industry who, because of the stresses or whatever uh, pressures in, in those jobs, end up taking their own lives. So mm-hmm. I, I guess what makes veteran suicide different or, or, or kind of worthy of the the distinction? Um, well, I, th- I think it's one of those things that, you know, it's it's a population, you know, we care about. Um, because it's so small and because of the sacrifices they made um, in order to earn that status um, that definitely, you know, and we're tracking them. And also it's one of those things that, you know, there, there's a difference in, you know, 
veteran culture, military culture, and civilian culture. Um, and sometimes we kind of place that on a pedestal and we say, like, well, we can't understand what they're going through because I never did it to. Um, and, and what we've learned is that the reasons that veterans attempt suicide or complete suicide are the exact same reasons as the civilian population. So, you know, the top three, um, you know, mirror each other in the sense that number one and two flip-flop between financial issues or relationship issues. And then number three is substance abuse and alcohol uh, issues paired with mental health. So those are things that whether you served or not, you probably have some experience in, in dealing with navigating. and with So when we're talking about veteran suicide, we're talking about, you know, everybody. Um, and that's why we go back to that 135 again and saying, like, you know, we want everybody feeling comfortable talking to veterans about these things and getting them into the VA healthcare system. Because one of the things about that now, from, you know, from 22 to now 17 a day is... Of those 17 veterans, 12 to 14 are not actively utilizing VA healthcare options at that time or not enrolled. And that's something that tells me that if we can get them into here, you know, we can drastically reduce the uh, chances of them completing suicide because the VA has adapted the whole health model. Because if you only walk into the VA because your shoulder hurts, that's great. And we're going to do everything we can to help fix that shoulder. But while you're here, we're going to talk to you about every other aspect of your life. We're going to try to get in there and see what else we can try to improve with you in order to help you, like I said, make a, a great next chapter of what you're trying to accomplish. And whatever that may be, like I said, financial issues, personal uh, relationship issues, mental health in general, it's all going to fall under VA healthcare. And it's things that we want to do. We want to know when you come in to just talk about that shoulder, because we're going to take care of the shoulder, but we also want to see every other aspect of your life and see where we can help improve that too. And by doing that, that's how we're lowering that suicide rate amongst actively engaged veterans in the VA healthcare system. So I, I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that, that the reasons ultimately are all the same, because I think when a, a lot of people out there think about veteran suicide, they, they think they immediately go to a place where it's somebody who's separated, they came back, they, they saw some stuff, and it, it's it, whether it's a failure to reintegrate or cope with what they've seen or anything like that, that it just ends up being too much for them. So it, it's interesting to me to hear that it, it is all the, the same things. Mm-hmm. Um, so in your mind, does that, that then make it easier for people to talk to veterans about suicide? That, that it is just kind of a everyday issue kind of thing, and it's not something that I have to have a, ba- a military background in to kind of understand where you're coming from. Absolutely. Um, I, I think it's just one of those things where, you know, getting to know the people around us, um, you know, communicating, building those next level conversations past the superficial stuff is going to open those doors in order to have those difficult conversations when they're necessary, Um, whether it's be about their service or not. Um, At the end of the day, you know, most veterans just want somebody in their life who's going to care about what they're talking about, whether it is about their service or whether it's about everything going on past their service. Um, Like I said, you don't have to be a subject matter expert on any of it to just care about somebody and to create an environment where they're willing to share their story. Um, a lot of it's just sitting back and listening and letting them tell their tell their story. So, you know, even though they may talk about MREs and DD-214s and MRAPs and IEDs and all these other wonderful acronyms we have for things that don't necessarily make sense, you know, you don't have to stop them every 30 seconds to, clear, to clarify what they're talking about. You just let them tell their story and go from there. And, you, you know, you can get to the details of it later. The important thing is they're willing to share with you, that they're willing to confide in you about these things. Um, and when you can 
build upon that, you know, you find out that you are somebody that they're going to trust and they're going to continue to trust uh, moving forward. And that's just, you know, so invaluable to any of us. So so then what do you do in, in kind of a situation like that where, you know, somebody's got to want help to be helped? Mm -hmm. um, you, you see somebody who's obviously in crisis. They, they could use somebody to talk to, but whether they're just so far down the hole of, of wanting to, to finish it all off or, or whatever that they just don't want to talk to you. How do you, how do you handle that? You know, in the moment, one of the greatest tools anybody's going to have when we're having kind of these deep water conversations is 988. Um, you know, if, if me and you weren't doing a podcast right, you, right now, me and you were having a serious conversation and I started talking about things that you weren't comfortable with and you didn't know where to go next from there or you didn't know where to take the coverage from there. That's where you can say, hey, look, I appreciate you sharing. I'm glad we're having this conversation and I really want to help you with everything going on right now. However, I would also like to bring in a professional. So can we call 988 together? And we'll continue this conversation with them on the phone and maybe have them help guide us towards some potential resources out there to help resolve what's going on. Um, and that's one of those things because 988 is such a valuable tool for veterans in the fight against suicide. And it's a great tool for all of us. And, you know, it's called the crisis line for a reason. The veteran decides the crisis in which to call them in. It's not my, my job to determine here's the criteria needed to call 988. If you wake up at 2 in the morning feeling lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rut and you don't know how to shake those thoughts and you don't know what, and you don't want to roll over and bother your significant other, you don't want to call a friend, you don't want to reach out to somebody, 988 is going to be there to help with that. And it's confidential. And it's going to stay between you and that person. Just because you call 988 does not mean the cops are going to come to your house. Now, if you call them and say, I have a firearm or I've taken some pills or I've cut myself, they're going to initiate a welfare check because they're going to do everything in their power to keep you safe. And we want you to remain safe and alive. But if you're just calling because you're having a crisis, you're trying to process things, you can't get out of a negative thought pattern, that's what 988 is for. And if you want the VA to follow up with you afterwards, then they'll forward that information to the suicide prevention team and we will call and follow up and try to help resolve whatever's going on. But if you don't, then it just stays between you and that uh, crisis responder. And that's such a powerful tool for all us to do. But when we talk about 988, we want to talk about those details because we've all seen the cards, we've all seen the pamphlets, we've all seen the flyers. But then we only hear the stories of somebody called 988 and the police showed up. Somebody called 988 and, you know, it wasn't confidential, which we know is not true, but, you know, stories get out there. Um, and, you know, so we can talk about it. We can give them the details of it. Now we're empowering them to use it because we're clarifying what exactly they can use it for and what's going to happen with them on the follow-up from using it. You mentioned firearms. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard a lot in, in past years about how measures like gun locks mm -hmm. and, and securing ammunition separately from the weapon – uh, those are measures that have had a, a substantial impact on uh, preventing suicide, especially veteran suicide when you have a subset of people who are very familiar with firearms, right? Uh, and having that gun lock on there serves as a, as a deterrent because it, it makes you take time and, and kind of realize you are taking conscious steps to, to do an act, right? Um, but that's a very passive measure. It only works if you have a gun lock in salt, right? Mm -hmm. It only works if you store your ammunition and your firearm separately. So what are some, I mean, that's the most prominent thing in my head, but what are some other passive measures that, that somebody can do if maybe they're just not in a, not in a good place and they want to, they know they don't want to, but sometimes thoughts 
you know, thoughts prevail and, you know, they want to prevent things from happening in the future and kind of actions they can take to keep themselves safe. Absolutely. And, and there, there's a couple things to really look at here when we're talking about lethal means reduction and, and especially regarding firearms. The reason why we talk about firearms when we talk about lethal, mean reduction, re, lethal means reduction in the veterans community is because it is the most often used means of attempt. And unlike all other attempts, it has a 90% rate of success. Um, so um, it's one of those things that if people choose to use it and they use it, there's a good chance that they're going to complete that suicide, and that's what we don't want. But at the same time, when we're talking about lethal means reductions in regards to firearms, one of the biggest things I always like to say is this is not a Second Amendment debate. I am not here to infringe on anybody's rights. I am not here to take away everything. I am not on either side of how you feel about guns. I'm just trying to keep you safe in the moment. I just want you to put time between your thought, your plan, and your action. Because right now, if on the table in front of us was a loaded firearm, and my plan was to use that to complete suicide, from thought to plan to action could be less than five seconds. So there's no time for anything else to happen in that moment other than for me to complete what I intended. But if I said right now my plan was to drive downtown and jump off the strat, all right, I got to get in my car. I got to walk across campus because I had to park on the other side. I have to drive 20 minutes downtown through traffic. I have to find a place to park. I have to walk through the casino. I think I have to pay 20 bucks to ride an elevator to the top. Mm-hmm. Then I have to figure out my way to the top. All right, so not only is this taking 45 minutes, and within that 45 minutes, any number of things could pop up to divert me. I could get a text from a loved one. I could make a phone call myself. I could choose to call 988. I could just be driving down there and realize on the way down there, like, you know what? I don't want to go to the Strat. Since I'm on North Las Vegas on the 15, I'm going to pop off here, and I'm going to go to Cali Bomb and get a cheeseburger and feel happy about myself for a few minutes. But any one of those things could happen because there's time between my intention and my plan. And that's what we're trying to build with any sort of passive measure is we're trying to put time between that plan and that actual attempt. And when we're looking at firearms, we're saying, okay, I get it. It's a gun lock. It's not going to, you know, necessarily stop me, but it's going to add time. Um, Yes, you know, keeping my weapon and my ammo secured separately isn't necessarily going to stop me, but it's going to add time. Um, And when you can do that, you're finding excuses to not go through with your plan. One of the things I tell everybody is I say, look, if you keep your weapons in a lockbox in a safe, A, for starters, great. That's exactly where they should be. Good job. Um, but on the sec- but other side, I say, hey, now, inside that, when you open it up, I want you to put a picture of something you care about. Because the first thing I want you to see is in that firearm, I want it to be a loved one. I want it to be your dog. I want it to be a favorite hobby or interest. Something that reminds you that your life matters and that you have things worth living for. You know, that's lethal means reduction because and the other important thing to understand with lethal means reduction is that if we know somebody's plan and we can put these safety measures in between completing it statistically they're not going to choose another option if somebody has chosen to die by firearm and we take away their firearms they're not going to then choose to cut themselves or take pills or jump off a building people's plan are their plans and if we can put those safety measures in that's what we can do um, one of the one of the things we always talk about is saying, hey, if you're not willing to give up your guns, can you give your significant other the keys or have them change the combination to the safe, right? Can you create a hold network? Who do, in your social support network are you willing to have come pick up your firearms? Um, one of my favorite safety plans I ever referenced was somebody said, I want to drive my car into my garage and not 
and just leave it running and shut the door and fall asleep and never wake up. And what their plan was, and they said, why haven't you done it yet? Well, my garage is dirty and I can't clean it up. And, you know, I, I literally can't park my car there if I wanted to. And they said, great, don't clean your garage. Right. That's a plan. That's something that's preventing that person from going there. So when we talk about that, it's really important that we understand actually what the plan is and then what measures we can put in that person's life in order to prevent them and what they're willing to do. Because we can sit there and say, look, if you're feeling at risk of suicide, you can drive to the nearest police station. Go, on, go in there, don't carry them in, and let them know you have a trunk full of weapons and you don't feel at risk to yourself. And I promise you they will come out and take them from you. But is that a real plan? Is anybody ever going to actually do that? Because I don't know where those weapons go. I don't know how you get them back. I don't think that. But we can say, hey, you know what? What about your cousin who lives across town? What about just changing the combination? Um, what about going to you know, other friends and family and creating that whole network? Um, or what about coming to the VA just getting gun locks? You can come to any... VA clinic across the valley, and we have gun locks. We are willing to give them to you. However many you say you need is the number we will provide. That being said, if you think you're getting yourself a free gym locker, I'm just going to tell you right now, they're all keyed the same. So if one person has that key, everybody person has that key. So it is not a good deterrent for theft, but it is a great way to add some time between a thought a plan and an action. So if there are any, what, what are some of those time delay passive measures that another person can take on somebody's behalf, if there are any? Like if, if I'm a friend and I see somebody who's in, in crisis, is there anything I can do to maybe slow them down? Um, Other than just talking to them? Yeah, I, you know, talking with them, taking them out, doing something. You know, one of the things we talk about when we talk about safety planning is we don't just start with go to the hospital and you know, um, be assessed by a mental health professional. We start with how to distract yourself, how to, um, what can you do within your own control that can take your focus off the crisis at hand? Can you pet your dog? Can you watch your favorite TV show? Can you read a book? Can you go from there? And if that doesn't work, then who can you reach out and engage in a social activity? Once again, not a friend that you're going to necessarily confide in the problem about. You're not going to force them to talk about it, but you're just going to take them out. You're going to go have dinner. You're going to go bowling. You're going to do something fun together. Um, and hopefully kind of, you know, get your mind off whatever's going on and give you a chance to gain some perspective on the issue um, and then be able to come back with it and actually be able to, you know, see the forest through the trees and be able to tackle that problem at hand. So as that friend who's kind of seen that person at crisis, um, you know, this doesn't mean, you know, we don't we don't want to do the old, uh, uh, hey, let's uh, let's let's go to Disneyland, but you're taking your kids to, kids to get shot sort of thing. Um, you know, we don't need stage of intervention. We don't have to go to that level. Um, but, you know, it's just about connecting with them. It's about going like, hey, you know, what? let's go play um, some Frisbee golf because that's something we like to do. Let's just go out and have a good time together. Let's just go out and relax. And, through you know, through that action, what you're going to find, hopefully, is that that during that they're going to open up. They're going to talk to you about it and they're going to you know, let you know what's going on. Um, but like I said, we don't have to jump right into the deep ends. We can just start in the shallows and see how it goes and work and work there um, together. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's about all the time we have for today. But before we, uh, before we wrap this up, um, one more time, if you could just uh, give us the, the resources that are out there, uh, numbers to call, websites to go to, if, if anybody's in crisis or, or needs some help. Yeah. Uh, 988 Press 1 is the crisis line 24-7. They also have a texting option. Um, if you're having that conversation with a veteran and you're looking for those resources, va.gov forward slash reach um, is going to be your navigator for that. Um, at the same time, if you or any, if you're, 
uh, any organization out there is looking for VA save training, uh, my team can go out into the community and we're out, we'll do it. We'll do it for free. Um, there's no charge. We'll bring a bunch of handouts and 98 cards and stress balls and all those great things to kind of help get that information out there in everybody's hands. Um, and really if you just have any questions about, you know, what your role is and how, what you can do, um, to help prevent a suicide um that's what my team's here for and that's what we want to do because you know we want to try to be as proactive as we can be on this um when somebody's on the high high risk flag list um you know we're there for them we're supporting them we're doing everything we can but if we can get to those people at the five pound stage if we can get to the community members who can help them uh talk about these problems at that level you know that's that's really where we want to be um so please reach out to us please contact us um We'll go from there. Actually, there's one last thing I want to talk about. Sure, absolutely. Um, and, you know, and really it's the 72-hour hold process. Um, like I said, you know, when we're talking about the safety plan area, kind of the last step in the safety plan is go to your nearest emergency room, be seen by a mental health professional. Um, that could be a very intimidating and uh, prospect for somebody because you don't know what's going to happen. Like, if I go on a 72-hour hold... Am I going to lose my security clearance? If I go on a 72-hour hold, am I going to come back and find out that all my firearms have been taken out of my house by local law enforcement? If I go on a 72-hour hold, you know, uh, you know, what happens next? What's that look like? And, well, for starters, the answers to the security clearance question and the firearms question is no. This will not have any negative impact on um, those sort of situations. A 72-hour hold is simply designed to keep you safe. It is a chance for the medical center to observe you. Make sure you're getting your eight hours of sleep. Make sure you're getting three square meals a day. Make sure you're taking the medications you're, that are prescribed to you and that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And then give you a chance to assess your situation and see where you are. So when you go into that um, that, me- that emergency room and ask to be seen for a mental health assessment, there is a chance you, you know, you're know you not going to walk out of there. You're going to go on a 72-hour hold. However, that does not mean that there's going to be all these negative ramifications you're going to have to carry forward for the rest of your life. It is just an opportunity for us to keep you safe because hey maybe you haven't slept in a couple days maybe you haven't been eating right maybe you have ran out of your medications or the medications you know weren't doing what they're supposed to be doing this is going to be an opportunity to get those kind of base level needs um fixed again and then on the way out also go hey let's try to get you want to do a residential uh treatment program do you want to do intensive outpatient you know what else can we do to help you go from there so a 72-hour hold is never meant to be a punishment um and i don't want anybody to ever see it as that i want you to understand it as a valuable tool for you in order to just kind of reset everything and then continue moving forward with your life excellent well thank you very much for joining us today it's a it's an important topic and, and it's something that needs to be discussed more openly more often in in my opinion so thank you very much for joining us today um i'm very happy to hear it's now at 17 a day instead of 22 um 17 is still too many but it, it's a good thing that we're we're trending in the right direction so thank you very much to joe lasky he's our uh, suicide prevention program manager here at the va southern nevada Healthcare system thank you for joining us today my name's joshua gray i am your host this is the nine line thanks for joining us and we'll see you in two weeks you've been listening to the nine line a production of the va southern nevada Healthcare system For more information about what the VA is doing for Nevada's veterans, check out our official webpage at www.lasvegas.va.gov or follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash lasvegasva. Thanks for listening.